This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, the President's Club and the Vice President's Waiting Room. We're going inside the most exclusive members-only institution in the United States, a fraternity with only five living members. It's got its own clubhouse on Jackson Place overlooking Lafayette Square. And now, it's got its own book. Nancy Gibbs, Deputy Managing Editor of Time Magazine, will join us. Along with Michael Duffy, she's chronicled the unique relationship among ex-presidents and the sitting occupants of the Oval Office. Then, we're going into the presidential waiting room. Or in another word, it's purgatory. It's the vice presidency. And as Joe Biden gets a little over his skis on the gay marriage issue and Mitt Romney looks for what one of his team called an incredibly boring white guy, we'll talk with one man who's seen the process firsthand. After the pick is made, what happens next? We'll ask Dan Gerstein, president of Gotham Ghostwriters and a longtime aide to Senator Joe Lieberman, Al Gore's running mate in 2000. Sadly, Adam Belmar can't be with us this week, so we'll get right to our first guest, Nancy Gibbs of Time Magazine and author of The President's Club. Simon & Schuster's latest contribution to the nonfiction bestseller list, Nancy's been with Time since 1985, with over 140 cover stories to her credit. Joining the magazine after graduating from Princeton with some extra time at Oxford as a Marshall Scholar, she's also the author of The Preacher and the Presidents, Billy Graham in the White House. Nancy, welcome to Polyoptics. Nice to be with you. After all the uh, publicity around the President's Club and all the conversations that you've had, I particularly enjoyed about an hour and a half of you and Michael with Brian Lamb. Is, are, is the notion of the presidency one that you want to put on the shelf for a while and get on to other things, or are you happy to, to keep talking about this subject that is endlessly fascinating to so many readers? You know, you would think I would want to, you know, now talk about gardening or something, but it actually has been really fun as we've traveled around the country. We've done, as you suggest, a lot of a lot of interviews and answered a lot of questions from listeners and from audience members. And what I love is just how fascinated people are by the private side of the presidency, which is really what Michael and I were exploring in this book, and and how delighted they were to be learning things about these men that we've watched on the public stage for so long, and we feel like we know them fairly intimately. When you discover a whole new side of them and of the office itself, people are, have been so engaged and so interested. That's been really fun and energizing for us. So somehow we're not sick of talking about it yet. So obviously a great sort of physical manifestation of the President's Club, something that I guess from my conversation that you had with with Brian came up that, that Michael was somehow clued into the existence of Jackson Place. Is that right? That's right. It came up in an interview he was having with uh, a young military aide to Richard Nixon who was given the task of finding a place where Lyndon Johnson could stay when he came to town. Uh, that aide was Brent Scowcroft. Uh, and he was the one who had to go out and find this um, building that the government owned, but that Nixon had sort of repurposed for the use of former presidents. And for a long time, it was it was not a terribly deluxe accommodation. It's been recently renovated. And so now it's actually, it's very nice. Michael describes it as being like a really nice Four Seasons. and But you know that uh, the only four people who can stay there, who have to call the White House to make a reservation, uh, who they are, because the minute you walk in the door, there on the rug is the presidential seal. It's literally embroidered on the bedspreads. Interesting, you mentioned that Nixon was the person who put this aside. In, in anecdotes about Nixon that might not be in your book, 
uh, things like his um, platforming over President Kennedy's swimming pool uh, to make the White House briefing room, uh, his outfitting the uniform division of the Secret Service and sort of uh, royal regalia. And I think you did mention in the book the paving of paths at Camp David to make golf carts go faster, and even this isolation of Jackson Place as a place for Lyndon Johnson and subsequent presidents to hang out. Richard Nixon, who we vilify so much in history, seems to be the guy who was almost the most active in terms of preserving and enlarging the institution of the presidency. What's your take on Nixon as a person who felt empowered to do some of these things? Well, he, he certainly had a very strong feeling about the office of the presidency and his mission to protect it. And, you know, the, I mean, the thing, God help love us that, about Nixon is that we can we get to listen in on his Oval Office conversations thanks to the, the recordings. You know, when the Pentagon Papers story first breaks in The New York Times, one of the things that Nixon is most outraged about in the, his private conversations with his aides, it's not that the Pentagon Papers made him look bad. You know, remember, they covered America's involvement in Vietnam through the Kennedy and Johnson presidencies. The, they ended by the time Nixon Nixon took office. So it was not that Nixon was annoyed that his secrets were being revealed. He was annoyed that um, how is a president supposed to be able to conduct foreign policy if he can't keep secrets, if there is no um, ability to have confidential conversations? It was his attack on the Times and on the whole Pentagon Papers leak was in his mind about protecting the office of the presidency itself. And there are a million examples of this, as you suggest, some of which are entirely um, symbolic uh, and some of which are very deeply practical. You know, but having said that, I, I think I would dispute the idea that he was much more intent on preserving and protecting and elevating the office. You know, Lyndon Johnson had uh, a very strong view about the office of the presidency. John F. Kennedy felt that Eisenhower, his predecessor, did not fully appreciate the the powers of the office and had turned it into sort of too much of a, of a delegated military um, organizational structure and didn't understand the, the sort of personal power of the presidency. So one of the things that interests us most is how each successive president views the office, views his uh, his role in protecting it. And that is one of the central roles that the president's club uh, performs, is, is to protect the office of the presidency itself, regardless of who's occupying it at the time. In the research process and writing process that you and Michael went through, and you talked about with Brian how you uh, you took sort of the first half of the of the span from Herbert Hoover maybe up to the Reagan and Michael took the from Reagan up to Obama. Well, I'd say we we did the handoff at Nixon, but Nixon yep. spans you know fifty years. You know, right. we first meet him in nineteen forty seven, and he dies in ninety four. So, um, so we both had to wrestle with Nixon. But other than that, yes, I tended to have the the Nixon the pre. Nixon presidents, and he had the post-Nixon presidents. Your mention of the existence of, obviously, the taping system that Nixon used, Johnson used, Kennedy used, uh, and the conversations that so many of us have heard of Lyndon Johnson uh, cajoling members of Congress to to pass uh, the civil rights legislation, uh, the conversation that I think uh, I've heard of Johnson talking to the ex-presidents about the Vietnam peace talks. at what point does the existence of audio-video recording and your ability to actually almost read the, the body language or voice language of a president begin to die off? Because in my time in the White House, I, I of course knew that White House television, the White House Communications Agency videographers that were assigned by the Navy to cover a lot of the private ceremony, 
saw a lot of the times of, of Clinton behind closed doors, I suspect so much of that audio and video will be sealed forever, if not at least until the president's death. But how much are you enabled by the recordings versus from maybe Bush on, Bush 41 on, to presidents who are so much more leery of having themselves recorded? Well, I do often wonder how historians 50 or 100 years from now will write about the recent presidents where, you know, in the age of email and of Blackberries and of that video record of, of what will be available to them when it was such a fantastic resource to us to be able to look at at the letters and the diaries and listen to the tape recordings. And thanks to places like the Miller Center at UVA and the presidential libraries, so much of this is now available to professional and amateur historians alike. And it's an amazing thing to be able, as you suggest, to be able to listen to the phone conversation between President Kennedy and President Eisenhower on the morning that Kennedy is going to announce the quarantine of Cuba. And, you know, do you think I'm about to start World War III? Um, it's an amazing, obviously, to listen to the Johnson phone calls, to the Nixon tapes. You know, interestingly, uh, when Nixon, it was Johnson who told Nixon about the White House recording system. And Nixon had it all ripped out. He realized how dangerous it could be to have everything be recorded. Uh, and it was in, in 1969 when he takes office, he has a new system installed, partly because after he's been in office for a couple of years, he realizes that some of his uh, maybe more high-profile aides, like, say, Henry Kissinger, are going to want to tell their version of events. And Nixon wants to have uh, a, his own record of who said what, whose idea was what. And so Nixon has a new system installed. And of course, we know what came of that. These are such tremendous resources for people who are interested in the presidency and interested, again, in the, in the private presidency, that I do wonder how much future historians will ever really get to know about the Clinton White House in which you served, the Bush White House, the Obama White House. That's right. I do think that these videotapes shot by these military photographers uh, and the audio that they collect will shed a good deal of imagery on the Clinton presidency that we don't see now. Uh, and, and I think that'll be fascinating. You know, coming into the White House in 1993 and being part of so many of those early missteps the travel office, the appointment of the special prosecutor, um, just all the things that uh, that a new president goes through in their transition, because as you've written in so many different ways in the President's Club, uh, no president is prepared to take on that office. I think we saw it too in 2001, uh, really up until 9-11, there was work by President Bush 43 in which he didn't really find his footing, and I think that was true for Obama as well. Can you bring us back to uh, 1961, and the, the picture that you paint of a new administration, the Kennedy administration, almost inheriting the plans for the Bay of Pigs and how President Kennedy had to go back to President Eisenhower and figure out what to do with this idea? Well, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking about how few presidents actually have, you know, a smoother, easy first few months in office. And again, because no matter how experienced they are and how familiar they think they are with the role, it is just utterly different to be sitting in the chair yourself and have to make the decisions. And in Kennedy's case, um, he was determined to change the decision-making structure in the White House from what I had described as this kind of the military uh, structure that Eisenhower had put in place to what was more would be more like the spokes of a wheel with him at the center of decision-making. And in those first months, the planning for the Bay of Pigs invasion had 
indeed started under Eisenhower as part of a larger conversation about what to do about Castro in Cuba. And Eisenhower had been warned by his aides, you know, these sorts of ideas have a way of taking on a life of their own. And, you know, this this thing could get out of control. And Eisenhower said, you know, not as long as I'm in the Oval Office, to which the aides said, yes, exactly, Mr. President. Right, because I mean, Eisenhower's, not... Eisenhower is so proud that despite having been a, a supreme allied commander, no American had died in combat during his eight years, right? And so, you know, th- but this idea that, you know, once he leaves that uh, that this plan might not take a few uh, strange turns and uh, that he could forever control it, you know, even after out of, he's out of office, uh, we see what happens with that, where during the winter of 1961, the, the planning, the military planning for the invasion uh, keeps getting bigger and bigger. The invasion keeps basically getting noisier and noisier. And there was an assumption that uh, when it failed, when the initial invasion failed, Kennedy would have to send in the Marines, basically, that there was no way a new president would allow uh, a huge military failure on his watch. And the idea that the, Bay of, that the success of the Bay of Pigs invasion depended on it initially failing and then the U.S. coming in is sort of one of these amazing ironies. And Kennedy, of course, said later, you know, they all misread me. They all assumed uh, that I would send in the U.S. military. And of course, uh, it did end up failing. It ended, Castro knew it was coming. It was a disaster. The entire world denounced the United States for this policy. And there's Kennedy uh, just wondering, how could I have been so stupid? How could I not have understood that how badly wrong this was going to go? And, and it made him take a very hard look about how he, the options he had heard and how he had weighed them and how the decision-making had gone off the rails. And among the people he talked to about it was indeed Eisenhower, who met him at Camp David, uh, grilled him about you know, what advice he had gotten from whom, were the Joint Chiefs on board, what was the CIA saying, was everyone all in the room at the same time having to answer questions. Um, and Kennedy says, you know, no one knows how tough this job is until... Right. You've been in it for a few months. And you know, Eisenhower says, forgive me, Mr. President, I tried to warn you of that a few months ago. I mean, some of my exposure to the President's Club uh, during the Clinton years sort of echoes that, which is, <clears throat> I guess, you know, the first time that, the, that President Carter and President Ford are called into the East Room to establish the tableau that was supporting the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, I remember with President Clinton, uh, with President Juan Bertrand Aristide in the, uh, in the White House, and the involvement of President Carter in the negotiations of what would happen to the future of Haiti. I also remember with being with President Clinton late that night, Nancy, uh, when we get news that President Nixon has died, and it's up to President Clinton to walk out uh, in the glare of the Rose Garden, the pool assembled, uh, lights hastily erected, and the president makes this statement of the death of President Nixon. What was? Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between President Clinton and Nixon before he passed away? It, you know, it was so fascinating to us to watch these two unlikely presidents, different generations, different parties, different, you know, backstories, different personalities in every way, uh, become friends and, and partners in the way that they did. You know, when Clinton was elected, he had more presidents alive. The club was bigger than it had been at any time since Abraham Lincoln took office. And Uh, They all, to varying degrees, wanted his attention. No one more than Nixon, who practically stood outside the White House, jumping up and down, waving his arms, saying, listen to me, listen to me. That's right. And 
uh, you know, Nixon wrote some very positive op-ed pieces about sort of the promise of Clinton's presidency, but he is calling and calling and, uh, you know, wants to talk to Clinton. He's not hearing anything. So he starts writing some tougher op-eds and that, you know, basically sends a sort of warning, like, look, either you talk to me in private or I'm going to get really hard on you in public. It's like, you know, he's he's good cop, bad copping the president of the United States. So Clinton ends up calling Nixon and, and the two men sort of become late night phone pals where Clinton would call and ask Nixon not just about the areas of the world where he, you know, could be a very valuable guide, talk about China, talk about Russia, but Clinton would ask Nixon about things like how to organize his day, how to use his time. He would run Nixon through his schedule and say, you know, am I doing this right? Is this what you did? And, uh, and of course, to Nixon, this is fascinating because not just because of sort of the intimacy of the conversation, but because this is a challenge that every every president faces. You never have enough time to do all the things that you need to do in a day. And President Clinton told us that, that about a month before Nixon died, he wrote Clinton a letter seven pages, single space, the letter's never been released, some parts of it have, um, that Clinton found so useful, so hard-headed, and the advice so shrewd that he takes it out and rereads it every year to this day. You're listening to our conversation with Nancy Gibbs, author of The President's Club, along with Michael Duffy on Polyoptics, Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Nancy, let's skip ahead uh, to maybe present day and... If you could imagine, well, actually tell us what kind of a member of the President's Club is the current President Barack Obama being, and what kind of president do you suspect he, what kind of a member do you suspect he might be should he not win re-election in November? Well, at whatever point President Obama leaves office, whether it's in, you know, next January or in, you know, four years from then, he will still be, as Jimmy Carter was, as Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, he will still be a relatively young man. He will likely have a very long period of membership in the club, potentially serving the presidents who follow him. And so I think one thing that we can say with some confidence is that the club is in for, you know, some boom years because we are electing these younger presidents. They're living longer and they all have to figure out their next act of what are they going to do with the influence that they have? What missions are they going to undertake? As president, uh, Obama has been fairly careful about his use of the club members. He has he has put all of them to use one way or another. Uh, you know, President George W. Bush has helped him out on some missions in Northern Ireland. He has sent Jimmy Carter to North Korea. He has enlisted Bush and Clinton together to do fundraising after the earthquake <laughs> in Haiti. Um, so he has used them all differently, but as I say, it's it has been fairly cautiously, partly because, as his predecessors found, um, club members can sometimes be a little tricky. Carter especially had a way of both being very useful, uh, but not always easily controlled. And so before Obama sent him to North Korea, President Carter told us, he made him sign like a 10-point memo of understanding about what he would and would not do, would and would not say, including promising not to talk to reporters about the mission. And who is actually serving as the intermediary between this? Is this White House counsel to the former president's counsel? What's the what's the communication flow between them before a mission like this is undertaken? Well, you know, the, it, we were interested in how often the former presidents and their uh, chiefs of staff talk to one another. But by and large, you know, there is sort of a protocol. This tends to be president to president. So, you know, it was President Obama who initiated the request that George W. Bush and Bill Clinton help out on Haiti. This is sort of not something that gets 
stamped out. Um, but I think that the you know one relationship that interests me particularly is the one between President Obama and the first President Bush, who Obama talked about very uh, positively during the the 2008 campaign and reached out to after he was elected. He made it clear that he he'd like to get to know President Bush better. He went down to his presidential library to honor him for his his public service and and. The, the thing that interests me there is how much this is this is not a matter of looking for advice from an elder statesman so much as it is um, when President Bush stops by the White House it is more just to just to sort of be a sounding board tell him jokes you know cheer him up distract him it's you know there's a wonderful photograph of a from a visit that uh, that Jeb Bush and Bush 41 paid to Obama about a year ago that is just the men laughing in the Oval Office and it's easy to forget that that there aren't many people who can talk to a president as though he's actually a human being and uh, and have a relaxed and natural conversation and among the few people who can do that tends to be someone who sat in the chair himself absolutely there's there's a sort of level of activism among ex-presidents that seem to correlate to the degree to which a president seems to have feels he accomplished his mission or not in the White House. Maybe you can dispute that. But if Jimmy Carter was thrown out in 1981 uh, and Bill Clinton's second term was colored by impeachment, these are two ex-presidencies that have been incredibly active, the formation of the Carter Center, the formation of the Clinton Foundation, Whereas Bush 41 and Bush 43 uh, have, as you have mentioned, responded to the call of the current president, but have had a much more behind the scenes, much more private role after their terms in office. Is that what you've seen in your research? Well, a couple things. One is that it's interesting that just this week we saw George W. Bush back in Washington giving a speech about freedom and his freedom agenda. And he's he has said he wants the real focus and mission of his foundation and presidential library to be about promoting freedom around the world. So while he has tended to be um, much more under the radar, certainly than Bill Clinton has been, um, I, I do think that we will see and hear more from him. Uh, every president is different, but to a degree that really fascinated us in our research, all of them, successful, unsuccessful, one term, two terms, leave office with things undone. They leave office with regrets and with scars. It's just the nature of the job that every decision they make is a hard decision. And so there will inevitably be things that they look back on and carry as a burden for the rest of their lives. Jimmy Carter certainly, because he uh, was tossed out after one term, and as a still relatively young man, really did have to invent uh, a whole second career for himself, and in a sense has provided the modern model. Although I would also point to Herbert Hoover. Jimmy Carter next September will surpass Hoover as the longest serving ex-president of you know 31 years, eight months, 23 wow. days, something like this. Um, because Hoover leaves office in 33, dies in 1964. So Carter is poised now to surpass that record. Uh, but Hoover, in his post-presidency, went a very long way to an extent we now forget in rehabilitating his image uh, after the Depression. And when he was asked how he had managed to overcome his the critics of his role in the Depression, he said, you know, I outlived the bastards. <laughs> and, and Carter himself has said, as I think Hoover might have said, uh, Carter says, I'm a, a better ex-president than I was a president. And to watch President Clinton today, I, I sort of keep close tabs on him. I saw him last at the 20th anniversary of the beginning of his campaign in Little Rock a few months ago. This is a person who seems to have 
after after surviving the the initial wounds of of leaving office and the loneliness that comes when your wife is senator from New York, uh, your vice president is running for office, uh, and dealing with the issues that that he left undone uh, and the um, and the pardons and everything else, he seems to have carved a very happy life and contented life and an activist life as an ex-president, hasn't he? Well, I don't think anyone imagined that Bill Clinton was going to go off the grid and play golf for the rest of his life. That just never seemed like his personality. But I do think he has found, with the Clinton Global Initiative especially, um, a way to to be a major global figure and leverage his influence and his, his celebrity to address issues that he really cares about. The fact that his wife is the U.S. Secretary of State uh, is an interesting plot twist. You know, President Obama basically made Bill Clinton sign a prenup uh, at the time of Hillary's appointment about who he could and could not talk to, where he could and could not raise money or speak, and, you know, put some fences up around Clinton's post-presidency for reasons that are, you know, fairly obvious when you have his wife serving in the administration as our chief diplomat. So this is a this is fascinating new territory that we find ourselves in with these uh, these people. But I think that Clinton's post presidency is likely to be a model for Obama's, just as in a way Carter's was a model for Clinton. Um, and we see, you know, and, and President Bush forty one, while he is obviously much less visible. Um, this is partly because now at age 88, his health is more precarious and, you know, he is more frail. He can't, when when Clinton called him up after uh, Haiti and said, you know, we need to hit the road again because they had it. worked together very effectively, yes, on the tsunami relief, on Hurricane Katrina. He said, yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm done. You need to call George, meaning his son. And that uh, created and he sort a, of handed the baton. And it created a whole new relationship and seemed it the way you and Michael have written it to almost get Clinton's full adoption into the Bush family, didn't it? It did, although that that was a long and fascinating process. You know, Barbara Bush uh, says she feels like her husband is the father that Bill Clinton never had. And how amazing is it that we saw in the modern presidency one man, George Herbert Walker Bush, see his son elected president and another president become a surrogate son so that, you know, the Bush clan calls Clinton their brother from another mother. And just this week, again, we saw we see these two sons. We see Clinton and George W. Bush doing a fundraiser together for the victims of Flight uh, 93 on 9-11. So these two guys have sort of become uh, not only siblings, but business partners and joint fundraisers. These relationships have so many more layers and dimensions to them than I think any of us could have imagined. We're talking with Nancy Gibbs, author of The President's Club and Deputy Managing Editor for Time Magazine. Nancy, before we let you go, I just want to sort of pivot to your career with Time. You came to the magazine in 1985 out of Oxford and Yale, and it was, to my growing up, the, the, the ultimate time for Time Magazine. The magazine was so thick and full every week, and coming home from uh, high school, I would open up and read Hugh Seidey's column and look at Dirk Halstead's pictures and Diana Walker's pictures, and I sort of got to know the Reagan presidency through the lens of Time magazine and the layout of the magazine. How have you seen it evolve from from those high points to certainly very tough times for print journalism and, and where you see the magazine today? Well, it, in some ways, you're right. It's a tough time for print journalism generally, for newspapers and many magazines. But 
we also view this as a as a golden age in terms of our of our influence and reach because of what technology allows. At the the time that you're talking about, we could arrive in people's mailboxes and on their newsstands once a week, and we're very much constrained by a finite number of pages and that weekly publishing schedule. Now we're a 24/7 news site. And uh, we have more followers on Twitter than any magazine other than People. Uh, we have an enormous social media presence. We now have as many readers on time.com as we do in print. We reach 50 million people every week. Henry Luce, in his wildest dreams, did not imagine uh, an audience for our journalism of 50 million people. So it's, it's a fascinating challenge of how we're going to figure out uh, how we reach our audience and what it is that they most need from us. But for both our photographers, for, for Diana, who continues to shoot yep. for us, um, and for our reporters, uh, it there has never been a better time to be uh, telling great stories and doing great journalism because of the ability to do it instantaneously, round the clock, not have to wait for or operate within the constraints just of print. So it. Yes, it's a challenge, absolutely, but I think the opportunity is tremendous. I have to say, as a, as a person who keeps boxes full of 1980s Time magazines and revels in sort of looking back at some of those covers, uh, I don't think I've seen a more arresting cover than last week Martin Scholler's photograph of, uh, of Jamie Lynn Grumet on the cover of your magazine. Did that get a lot of reaction? Uh, it got an enormous reaction, and so for those who... who ever go down the print is dead road, one only has to point to that when you have the entire country talking about a magazine cover and the story that it raised. And, you know, of course, we had a very lively internal conversation before it was published. And I I think it is a reminder that it is a great thing at a time when the country often feels very broken up into our little silos. And we're only talking to the people we know or who agree with us, that uh, to be a publication that can talk to a very large audience and bring people together, even to bring people together to have a debate, to have an argument. You know, should how long should uh, women be nursing their children? How close is too close between parents and children? Which is what this uh, cover story was about. You know, sometimes I think that the most passionate civil war in this country is not over politics or class or region. It's over parenting. And it's, it is great to have an opportunity to put that conversation center stage. It, it was amazing. For those of you who didn't get it in your newsstand, uh, it's a, the pictures are very much available online. The headline, Are You Mom Enough? Why Attachment Parenting Drives Some Mothers to Extremes and How Dr. Bill Sears Became Their Guru is Kate Pickert's cover story. Um, certainly, for those who might have uh, had their temperatures risen by that cover, Rick Stengel manages to bring it right down to the Bibi Netanyahu cover the next week. So Rick knows how to, to keep our temperatures modulated well. Nancy Gibbs, author of The President's Club, Deputy Managing Editor of Time Magazine, thanks so much for stopping by Polyoptics today. Very nice to be with you, Josh. And now Dan Gerstein. Dan's an old friend, and our lives have crisscrossed at a number of junctures. He grew up in Hartford, where I once lived, and wrote for The Current after college at Harvard. When I met Dan in 2003, as he was helping to launch Joe Lieberman's 2004 presidential campaign, I was dispatched by Mark Penn to create the launch event visual. Dan was a Lieberman veteran, working in the senator's office since 1995. Lieberman was also a thorn in our side in the White House when I worked for President Clinton. It was Joe who gave one of the toughest speeches of any senator, Republican or Democrat, about President Clinton's conduct that led to impeachment. Dan helped write that speech. Then everything changed. After an extensive vetting process, Vice President Al Gore picked Joe Lieberman with his conservative tilt and Jewish heritage as his running mate, hardly 
an incredibly boring white guy. Dan Gerstein, president of Gotham Ghostwriters, thanks for joining us on Polyoptics. Oh, thanks for having me, Josh. It's great to be here. Bring us back to that moment when Senator Joe Lieberman, Democrat of Connecticut, is on the short list. How long is that process of having your guy vetted, talking to the guy, wondering how life may change if he's called down to Nashville for that announcement? Well, back in uh, 2000, I would say the it started in the early spring, uh, the vetting process. I was in a unique position. I was the senator's communications director. And they had, in essence, constructed a Chinese wall um, so that I was not uh, involved in any of the vetting process. I was kept at a distance because I had to talk to the press. I had to be the senator's spokesman. Um, and they wanted to make sure that I was not in a position where I had to lie or mislead people. And the best way to do that was to shield me from a much of that process. So I sort of knew what was going on, but I really didn't have a lot of information. I certainly didn't know how serious it was until um, the last couple of weeks when um, it got widely reported that the shortlist was down to Senator Lieberman, Kerry, and Edwards. Uh, and during that time, you know, life got a lot more interesting and we had to have some contingency planning. Uh, but what was most fascinating was we were in essence told by the news media the night before the selection was to be made that um, Lieberman was not gonna be the pick. Uh, and so we all went to bed that night, um, you know, disappointed, um, but you know, none of us had outsized expectations or counted on it. And then we wake up the next morning, I'll never forget this, 6.45, the news breaks at AP, 6.47, I get a call, woken out of a sound sleep uh, by a, a reporter who had been, you know, charged with tracking the vice presidential nominees, saying, Dan, you know, your guy's the pick. And I'm like, thought it was a practical joke. What led to the miscommunication the prior night? I don't know if it was miscommunication. I think the Gore campaign, um, it, probably the single best thing they did uh, in the course of that campaign for you know us political insiders and orchestrating was the rollout of the, the nominee. They did a head fake, um, and no one, no one predicted that Lieberman was going to be the pick. Um, and uh, you know they really had a surprise, which in this era of politics, um, even back in 2000, is, is a rare feat. So for those who'd worked for Senator Lieberman for a long time, even though the Chinese wall is erected, this prospect of things changing and life becoming very different and having a guy who is in so many ways historic, what was the sort of zeitgeist of the Senate office, even though you were observing that Chinese wall? Uh, well, the, I think the most obvious thing that I noticed was that um, the we were on, you know, use the DEFCON status as a metaphor. We were on DEFCON 4 most of that spring, right? We, our sensitivity was much higher on political issues. We had to walk a very fine line. Um, and that fine line was not alienating people in the party and not, you know, uh, calling attention to some of the things that where Lieberman had, um, you know, differences of opinion with the party mainstream, but at the same time, not doing things that were inauthentic or nakedly, uh, cynically, transparently political. Uh, and to Senator Lehman's credit, you know, a lot of people don't appreciate about this. He's a great politician. You know, he'd been doing this for a long time and he was able to walk that line, I think, in a very uh, smart way. And he had a lot of help. Senator Dodd, uh, his senior senator from Connecticut and a good friend, uh, I think was instrumental um, in being an advocate and an advisor to Senator Lehman through that process. And I don't think the uh, Senator Lehman would have been the pick without Dodd's help. All right. So it's 647 in the morning. Your life is about to change. How immediately does it change for Joe Lieberman? How does it change for Dan Gerstein? Oh, um, the the metaphor that's commonly used is uh, it's like drinking uh, water from a fire hose. Um, it's just you are overwhelmed uh, from all sides, from the press, your friends, um, foreign dignitaries, the entire world. You are at that moment. You are the fixation. Uh, and um, you know, I had to you know just for me personally, I had to assign an intern to clear out my voicemail every thirty minutes. Um. It's that morning. 
8, eight o'clock in the morning? Do you rush down to the Senate office? Oh. Where does the senator convene? Is he able to dispense his Senate duties at that point, or does a Secret Service detail descend on him and he's immediately summoned to Nashville? Um, we uh, all descended on the Senate office. Um, we had, you know, instant, you know, crisis meeting to, to do some planning and get briefed on what was going to happen next. That um, was the next day. Uh, that they had scheduled the, you know, the official announcement and the the first kind of campaign rollout down uh, at the War Memorial in Nashville. And so, yeah, we had to do a lot of planning very quickly to get uh, the senator prepared um, and get our team down to Nashville. At what point does the Al Gore 2000 presidential campaign and the vice presidential staff in waiting descend on Senator Lieberman and get joined up with whoever the senator elects to come from his Senate staff to, to marry up and create what will be his roadshow for the next 10 weeks? Yeah, it's the it's the closest thing to a shotgun marriage in politics. Uh, instantly, uh, the Lieberman gets subsumed into the campaign. Uh, and the negotiations in terms of staff starts almost, you know, within 24 hours. Uh, and um, just because the basic logistics of it demand it, who, who's going to schedule him, who's going to brief him, things like that. Uh, there was a uh, staff handpicked by the Gore campaign ready to be with whoever the nominee was. Uh, and they assume their duties right away. So there was, um, you know, not really time to have turf fights or have ego be part of it. And, and it, from my recollection was it worked pretty seamlessly uh, through getting him down to Nashville and the planning for the event. Then the rubber hit the road and there were negotiations. And we sort of, there was figuring out who was going to be doing what. So Lieberman goes with Senator Gore after the announcement to Los Angeles for the Democratic Convention. I'm not sure how many events happened before then. What was the period from the announcement of the War Memorial in Nashville to Los Angeles? How it, were those weeks? It was, about, it was about 10 days to two, two weeks, I believe. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a fascinating period for me because my responsibility, I got uh, appointed to be, in essence, the guy who managed all of the incoming press about Lieberman's record. Right. So, you know, instantly he, you know, and he was not an unknown figure, but he was not necessarily a household name at that point, um, especially outside of Washington. And uh, on top of that, um, him being an Orthodox Jew and the first Orthodox Jew in this kind of position, um, people had all kinds of questions. Uh, and uh, so I had to be responsible with dealing with all of that incoming and make sure that people got accurate information. We got our message out. Um, we dealt with the rumors. We dealt with the uh, misinformation. Um, one of my favorite memories was the Republican tactic at that time to try and make trouble was not to, um, you know, attack Lieberman, but to damn him with faint praise. And um, they were pointing out all the differences between Lieberman and the Democratic orthodoxy um, and in certain and in particular places where he disagreed with Al Gore. And their argument was, well, Joe Lieberman's closer to us than he is to Al Gore. Uh, and uh, I have to say that was a very, you know, Machiavellian and, and smart strategy uh, because it forced us to kind of have to deal with, again, walking that fine line where not distancing ourselves from the senator's record, but making clear that he was a strong, solid Democrat, very much in the Democratic mainstream, just independent minded and had a couple of positions on principle where he disagreed with Al Gore. As you reflect on what Mitt Romney must be going through now as he thinks through options and he looks at a Joe Biden vice president, a Dick Cheney vice president. Do you think back to 2000 and wonder if Gore made the right choice with that ticket? Oh, well, that's I, I, I it's tough for me to separate my affection and loyalty to Senator Lieberman to have any kind of objectivity on that. But doing my best and putting on my strategist hat, I think Gore made the right pick for two big reasons. Uh, one was political and one was personal. Uh, at that time, Gore's biggest liability was the Lewinsky scandal uh, and the the character questions it raised about the Clinton orbit, not just President Clinton, but those around him. And um, 
the 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 simplest, cleanest way to make a statement about that, but in a way that was not um, in any way antithetical or disloyal to President Clinton um, or to Al Gore's record uh, was to pick Joe Lieberman, um, a guy whose character had never been questioned, was you know labeled the conscience of the Senate, uh, and. Uh, and actually had an affinity with people of faith because regardless of whether it was Christian faith or Jewish faith, because he was a devout Jew. I think on the personal side, and this to me is the biggest factor is Gore picked someone who he could trust implicitly, that he knew Lieberman um, was very loyal. Uh, and secondly, that because of their friendship, he understood that Lieberman would have his back throughout the campaign. And if I'm looking forward to what Mitt Romney has to do, um, I think that has to be second to the picking someone who's qualified to be president. And as we saw with Sarah Palin, how that can be undo a campaign, that the second most important thing is to have personal trust between the two candidates. Because as we saw with John Edwards and John Kerry, that was a shotgun marriage. Um, and uh, under the hot glare of the spotlight, uh, they had no relationship. There was no trust. Uh, and John Edwards was quickly marginalized by the Kerry people, and they couldn't use him um, in any constructive way to be an asset to the campaign. Were there moments when you felt like we're just not getting the kind of treatment that we ought to have for the role that we play? Yes. During, uh, you know, well into the fall, um, Lieberman started getting frustrated, not with uh, Vice President Gore, but with the campaign staff in Nashville. And he felt like that um, the the biggest challenge with the campaign was with swing voters, and particularly uh, those voters who were concerned about President Clinton's conduct. And the Gore people were continuing to use Lieberman to uh, echo the people versus the powerful message, to talk about the Medicare lockbox, all things that were kind of much more targeted at the Democratic faithful, uh, which in Lieberman's view was kind of misusing him and what his strength was. Uh, and he pushed very strongly to be, have a strong focus on the middle class, how we can continue to grow to middle class, and to talk about faith and values to re and to really champion Al Gore at, at, as a man of family and as a great dad and someone who shared the American people's values, because that's not something the campaign and particularly the Democratic uh, establishment focused on very much. And so Lieberman had reached a breaking point, actually, and, and he decided that he needed to be speaking more on these subjects um, to better support Al Gore. Uh, and the interesting thing was he got pushed back from the campaign and he went straight to Gore. And Gore said, Joe, you're absolutely right. You need to say what you got to say. Um, and so he, in essence, kind of reshaped his message um, for those last several weeks. And the, the, the culmination of that was a speech he insisted on giving at Notre Dame about faith and values. And I had the privilege of working with him on that speech. And it, um, and it was very well received. You're listening to our conversation with Dan Gerstein on polyoptics. Uh, history will note that the, the election was lost by a few thousand votes, depending on how the Supreme Court viewed it in Florida. And you would have thought that the uh, electorate in Florida would have been perfectly aligned to Lieberman's message. Do you think that, as you recall, Lieberman was sufficiently allowed to do re retail politics in Florida and try and squeeze out every vote that was available to the ticket? Yes. Um, I think history would, if, will, will record that uh, the Gore campaign exceeded expectations in Florida. Uh, they overperformed, and that was due in part, I am not going to in any way exaggerate this, but due in part to Lieberman's uh, effective retail politics and the connection he had with older voters there. You had left working for Senator Lieberman uh, by the time this had happened, but four years ago in 2008, John McCain gave very serious consideration to tapping Lieberman once again to be the undercard on the ticket. Based on your relationship with Senator Lieberman, your evaluation of that, what do you think would have happened had that unconventional pick happened? Oh, um, I think it would have blown people's minds. Uh, and the cognitive dissonance would have been tough for a lot of people to process to have the former Democratic vice presidential nominee be nominated by the opposite party. Uh, I think the reality is it 
it never would have happened. Um, I, you know, the, the was Lieberman game. Oh, from my understanding, yes. Uh, I think you know his, uh, you know, McCain's mantra, mantra, country first. Lieberman embodies that. And uh, if you know McCain thought he was the best guy to help lead them uh, to win the election and lead the country, then I think Lieberman, because of his close relation, personal relationship, the kinship he feels with McCain, he would he would have done it. Uh, but I think the the message that got conveyed to McCain from Karl Rove and others was that uh, it would have splintered the Republican Party. There would have unlikely been a walkout at the convention because as much as Republicans like Lieberman and admire him and they appreciate his support on the war and his hawkishness and his you know, uh, faith-friendly approach to politics. Um, on the key issues that matter to social conservatives, gay rights and choice, Lieberman is a social progressive, uh, and his positions would have been untenable. So the last three losing vice presidential nominees, uh, Joe Lieberman, John Edwards, uh, and Sarah Palin, uh, two of the three are not incredibly boring white guys, and one we thought was, but turns out wasn't, in John Edwards. Uh, what do you think of the statement uh, this week uh, coming from unnamed aides in the Romney uh, camp that they're looking for an incredibly boring white guy as their nominee? Um, I think it's smart, and I think it's smart for a couple reasons. One is um, the, the, the Palin pick has, um, in a certain res- uh, respects, you know, put extra scrutiny on the Republican nominee's choice for vice president. Um, it is going to be colored no matter what they do, because that is the the new paradigm. That's that's the thing that hangs over this whole conversation. And it's going to be judged in reaction to that. And the, the seminal mistake that McCain made was to pick someone who the very first cr- threshold you have to cross to be taken seriously uh, and to not hurt a candidate, the presidential campaign candidate, is to pass that smell test that you could be president. Sarah Palin, for whatever her strengths and weaknesses, most people did not view her as ready to be president. And that haunted McCain in many respects. I think you could point to hard evidence that it cost him hundreds of thousands of votes. There were a whole group of people who refused to vote for John McCain because of Sarah Palin. Uh, And in that sense, uh, going with someone who is a safe choice, who meets that uh, qualified, you know, prepare to be president test uh, makes a lot of sense, given the the precedent of the Palin pick. And I think the other thing is, uh, you know, uh, the history shows that vice presidential selections, if they have an impact, it's a negative impact. So the the mantra that we've heard all our professional lives is first do no harm. And I think that's a mantra for a reason is that uh, if you look back in the last 50 years, there have been very, very few cases where a, vi- a vice presidential pick actually translated into a benefit for the candidate. At best, they usually are a wash um, and don't hurt the campaign. Uh, the two the two things that stand out to me are Al Gore, right, because he gave a real energy and boost to Clinton and reinforced Clinton's unique attributes. Um, and then Dick Cheney, who helped qualify George Bush and reassure people that here was the scion of a former president who looked a little young, um, no foreign policy experience. He picks one of the most credentialed guys in Washington at that time to be his running mate and to address those doubts. Otherwise, in most cases, it's been a wash or in certain cases, it's hurt. So I think Romney's people are very smart. They want to make Barack Obama the issue in this campaign. So to to take the vice presidential candidate off the table as any kind of character issue, political liability, um, and have people talk about him, I think is probably the smartest thing they could do. So come to the summer of 2012, uh, and as we saw this week, Biden can be such a forceful uh, campaigner in his own right, in times, in many ways, more so than he can with the president hanging around him. Uh, look at the, the sort of stagecraft and presence of Governor Mitt Romney, can he be loosened up or have audiences feel more comfortable with a person who can be an opening act for him in a way that when he's sort of the 
the main event and the opening and the close doesn't really uh, he has not electrified crowds the way uh some of his competitors might be. I think that's a big open question for this campaign. Um, you know, going back to my personal experience in Lieberman and Gore in 2000, I vividly remember a number of the Gore people commenting on how Gore was much more comfortable and really uh, a better speaker and connected better with crowds when Lieberman was there. He really felt that Lieberman had his back. Um, he helped loosen him up. Uh, and, um, you know, the two of them together had a synergistic effect, just like you were talking about. Uh, and I think in certain respects, this, it's, a, it's a struggle uh, that a lot of presidential campaigns wrestle with is when to, you know, try and pair them up so you get that, you know, um, dual benefit. I think with Romney, um, he has, uh, he has a, a, a problem in connecting with crowds, and I don't know whether any vice presidential candidate. I don't know if he had Bono out there opening for him uh, or Jimmy Kimmel, um, anyone who's super charismatic, whether that would uh, compensate for that and, um, you know, or overshadow it or overshadow it. And so I think, you know, um, again, I think for him, there, there's very there's limited upside to anyone he can pick as a vice presidential candidate to compensate for his deficiencies. To, to me, the, the best that Romney can hope for is to have someone who's a good attack dog um, and who passes that uh, credibility tests can uh, reinforce the image of competence that Romney's going to try and project uh, and not be a center of attention so that the Romney campaign can focus their full force along with GPS crossroads and all those Republican uh, super PACs who are going to be nailing President Obama to keep the fire and attention focused on um, the the incumbent. Dan, you've also always been a guy who, as long as I've known you, has sort of straddled the center. Uh, certainly worked for Joe Lieberman for many years. When you came out of government, you were a very active blogger and writer for the Wall Street Journal and Forbes magazine. The headlines that you've written in the past have fired David Axelrod, get rid of Pelosi. Uh, I mean, this might qualify you to have a sense of sort of the right mix for uh, Mitt Romney's running mate. Do you mind, uh, l let's go through some of these names and have you sort of evaluate them as as um, good jelly to, to Mitt Romney's peanut butter. Uh, first of all, there's, you know, the, the big star and sort of the up and coming star of the Republican Party is Marco Rubio. Yeah, I think Rubio is, uh, you know, like we you know, using sports metaphors, a lot of upside um, and uh, has a bright future in politics, may one day be a national candidate. I think, again, if we were talking about in a vacuum, uh, there would be pro there would be a very uh, heated argument about uh, whether he was a good pick or not. I think in the post Palin era, uh, immediately after uh, Sarah Palin's uh, disastrous effect on the McCain uh, candidacy, there's no way that he's going to pick Marco Rubio uh, for precisely the same reason that he's too young, he's too inexperienced, and much like Sarah Palin, has a past that has not been vetted very well. So in terms of matching Romney sort of age for age, mid-50s, we haven't sort of seen two mid-50s people uh, on the podium together. Rob Portman of Ohio. Uh, my guess is that Portman will be the pick um, and for many reasons. One is he comes from uh, uh, a vote-rich state that is critical to the, to the election, one of the nine states that's really in play. Uh, second, um, he uh, will help uh, reinforce the uh, Romney message and image of competency. Uh, and also, Portman is well-respected on both sides of the aisle. There are very few people in national politics who've worked in Washington for a long time who've kept that. And Portman, to his credit, has managed to you know, work well with a number of Democrats um, and can make that claim that together they could bring a different kind of government uh, than what we have in Washington right now. Uh, and, uh, and then third, he's safe. Uh, I don't think you're going to find skeletons in the closet. He served uh, as a member of Congress. He served in a, several administrations. Uh, he's done the circuit. Uh, he's about as safe a choice as the Republicans could find right now. Another safe choice, Mitch Daniels at age 62, the governor of Indiana. 
Uh, I think Daniels would be an excellent choice as well. I think that you, uh, a challenge you run in with Mitch Daniels is that um, you might run into the problem that you had that George W. Bush had in 2000, is that uh, the ticket's bottom heavy. Uh, and I think what, uh, that once Mitch, Mitch Daniels went out there, um, people would be start asking is, why isn't this guy at the top of the ticket? Because he is much more articulate than Mitch Rom uh, than Mitt Romney, uh, and uh, I think he's much more comfortable in his own skin. Uh, and I think um, that could potentially be uh, a problem for the campaign as it went along. Literally bottom heavy, the governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. <laughs> Excellent segue. Uh, that, I think, is the closest thing to the Palin uh, pick, not because of an experience factor, though he's not super experienced, but in terms of a wild card. Um, he's a very charismatic. High risk, high reward, yes. as, uh, as well, the, the vetter for uh, John McCain said, A.B. Kelvahus. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I personally am a fan of Governor Christie in certain respects, just I think he's refreshing. But um, one of the things we've learned for presidential politics is refreshing, candid, uh, speak your mind and independent is not necessarily the most conducive to a winning presidential campaign. The premium is on discipline. And that has not been Chris Christie's uh, strong suit so far. Could he become disciplined in the space of a presidential campaign? Possibly. The other factor with him is that I think as much as he energizes the Tea Parties with his message, the Tea Party nation with his message of fiscal conservatism, he is a moderate in many respects, including on, if I remember correctly, um, he came out in support of the, uh, the Ground Zero Mosque. Uh, and so, and then on social issues, I, he, he leans a little bit more moderate than the, the, the base of the conservative uh, wing of the Republican Party. Would that pass muster? Would that become a problem like Lieberman's centrism was for the left in the 2000 campaign? I don't know. Again, it's another risk that I'm not sure Romney wants to take. Quick thoughts on three other wild cards in at four, age 40 or slightly above. Uh, Paul Ryan, congressman from Wisconsin, Bobby Jindal, governor of Louisiana, and Nikki Haley, governor of South Carolina. Uh, all, uh, all three are really... Um, Intriguing characters uh, have uh, a lot to offer in politics and their stars in the ascendancy. Uh, each comes with their own separate problems. Uh, I would say Jindal is the least problematic. Uh, he'd be a very interesting pick because of, um, you know, he's not boring and he's not white. Uh, and um, the Republican has, party has a big brand problem right now. They are uh, perceived as the white party. Uh, and as we all know about the demographic changes going on in this country, um, they're going to have to overcome that brand problem to be competitive going forward. Jindal really helps scramble that uh, image and change that playing field. Plus, he's acceptable to conservatives. That's not easy find. So I, right. I think Jindal will make the short list. Uh, Paul Ryan, I think, is um, as much as he excites the base um, and is attractive in many respects, uh, the budget he put forward makes him... Um, Unselectable. He immediately tanks the campaign on that issue because all you have to do is, you know, the ads write themselves. Um, Romney's got a problem with that budget as it is because he's embraced it. Uh, but to have the guy who wrote it um, personifying um, the uh, the problems that the Republicans have with entitlement cuts, uh, Medicare, all of that, uh, I think would be, again, violate the first rule of vice presidential selection, do no harm. As you and I both know, <clears throat> after... Uh... After this election, no matter the outcome, uh, or, or certainly if President Obama is reelected, the prospect of a of a open president, open White House in 2016 uh, begins to be talked about, um, uh, beginning the the moment the election is finalized. So there does seem to be an emerging uh, class of 40-something Republicans who might be seasoned uh, in term for, in time for 2016, and equally a, a class of uh, of Democrats. Uh, for 2016 as well, led by Governor Cuomo, perhaps, and, and maybe Hillary Clinton, should she decide to run again. I do remember, Dan, uh, maybe about 10 months ago, uh, you and I got together for lunch. It was just the, uh, maybe just the beginning of Governor Rick Perry's uh, 
uh, entry into the Republican primaries, you and I made a note of who we thought would be the, the top of the ticket and the running mate. Do you remember what you said? And I'll tell you what I said. Uh, I don't. Probably because it's going to come back and boomerang on me. No, I, I said it would be uh, a Perry-Romney ticket, and I have it written down somewhere, and I couldn't have been more mistaken about that. It shows that you know us sitting in these seats prognosticating, wondering what uh, might be going on in the conference rooms of Boston, Massachusetts, and the Romney campaign uh, and the decisions about this vetting process, we have absolutely no idea, don't we? <laughs> no, no. But I also think what the Perry candidacy shows is something we saw with Wes Clark, uh, Sarah Palin, uh, and you know other candidacies like Fred Thompson. People who look good on paper or you know have certain charisma, once you get into the meat grinder of running an, in a national presidential campaign, um, it really tests you. And the people um, who survive and then succeed are the ones that have the discipline and the strength, really. And to Mick Romney's credit, um, you know I could critique him on a number of levels, but what he did was he was a survivor, just like John McCain was in, in 2008. And they persevered and they worked hard and they stuck to their plan. Um, and they and they outlasted people who might be more talented or charismatic. Dan Gerstein, president of Gotham Ghostwriters, old friend. Thanks so much. Fascinating conversation on polyoptics, Sirius XM 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Dan, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for talking.